1: just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient, comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
0: When I say no, I don't mean that if someone asked me to do something, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not what I mean at all. It's not about deflecting workload or any of that. It was more about being strong enough in meetings or to creative directors, or to CEOs, and be able to say, I don't agree with doing that, and here's why, as opposed to being a yes person, because you're scared to be the opinion that's going against what senior management wants to do.
1: I'm Lauren McGoodwin, CEO of Career Contessa and the host of The Females. Today's guest is Aliza Licht the Senior Vice President of Brand Marketing and Communications at Alice and Olivia, and author of Leave Your Mark, a best-selling career advice book. Aliza's career journey started with aspirations to become a plastic surgeon before she let her creative side take over and moved into the media world. And it's a good thing she did, because Aliza has been a major player in fashion PR for over 20 years. Thanks to ingenuity, like her notorious role as the voice behind the DKNY PR Girl Twitter feed, that boasted half a million followers. Inspired by Gossip Girl, Aliza pitched the idea of an anonymous Twitter identity to the leadership team at Donna Karen, a risk that continues to pay off in big ways. Aliza quickly became every woman's favorite mentor with her book, Leave Your Mark where she shared her honest experience with ditching her dream job to pursue entrepreneurship. And spoiler alert, being a CEO of nothing wasn't her thing. is an industry veteran who continually offers authentic, raw career advice, serving as a constant reminder that there's true strength in vulnerability. And that's the exact advice we're all dying to listen to. Get ready to learn how to say no more often at work, why entrepreneurship is not as glamorous as it looks on social media, and what it means to leave your mark let's go. All right. So take us back to the days of being the DKNY PR girl and building a 17 plus year career at Don and Karen. How did you go from pre-med in college with plans to become a surgeon to working in fashion?
0: So, you know, I grew up with my walls, wallpapered in fashion magazines. I loved fashion since I'm three years old. I used to make clothes for my Barbies and, um, You know, I grew up in the 80s, and at that time, you know, when you were speaking to guidance counselors in high school, everything was really sort of traditional, and creative industries, um, those kinds of jobs were not really ones that were shared or, or sort of introduced to students, and everything was very typical, right? You could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, you can be a teacher, um, but working in fashion, working in a creative industry, was not really on the roster. So, I kind of, just, you know, thought to myself, what am I good at? I'm I'm a creative person, but I'm also, you know, an intellectual person, and I'm someone who actually enjoys science. So I thought, oh, maybe I should be a plastic surgeon because that combines sort of the aesthetic with the science. So when I went to college, I majored in neurobiology and physiology. And um, set out to be a doctor. And my junior year in college, I did an internship at a hospital that was very realistic to what it would be like working as an intern in a hospital. And I decided that that career path was not my future in my junior year of college, I did an internship at a hospital that was meant to be very sort of realistic as to how it would feel like to really be a medical student or an intern. And at the same time, um, I was going through, you know, a family situation, a family health situation. My grandmother was, you know, basically dying. So between her and being in a hospital all day, I said to myself, God, I'm like, I'm such an upbeat person. I love being around energy and happiness and I love my clothes and I don't want to wear scrubs all day. And I don't want to wear a hairnet and, 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 and the, the superficial side of, you know, what it meant to be a medical student, um, came to play, but also the really like the hardcore side of just being in a depressing environment all day. And I, and I thought to myself, like, do I want to do this every day? Like, do I want to be around just like, bad, sad things happening. And I decided that I needed to make a pivot. And I essentially, um, decided to give up this dream of being a doctor and tell my parents that I, that was no longer my dream. And of course they were like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I, I, I love fashion. I think I want to work for fashion magazine. And of course, I didn't know anyone in fashion. I didn't know how to do that, but I figured that I would buy some magazines, and I had remembered that there were mastheads in them. I didn't know it was called a masthead, but I knew that they listed people in the beginning of magazines, so I thought, why not just see, like, what these people do? So I did that. I was I went to the University of Maryland, so in Washington, there was a, a magazine called Washingtonian that I bought, and I decided to look through that masthead and apply for an internship and I got it in ad sales, um, and I didn't like ad sales either. But I liked what the editorial team was doing. So on the last day of my internship, they asked me, you know, do you have any other questions, or do you need help with anything? And I said, well, I don't really love your area. No offense, but the editorial team, I like what they're doing, and do you know how I can do this in New York? And they said, oh, do you know what Condé Nast is? Do you know what Hearst is? And so that opened my eyes up to this whole idea of these publishing houses. And I applied and I ended up getting an internship at Harper's Bazaar. So that sort of set me on my fashion, my fashion path. Um, And then two years into magazine editorial, I was really looking for a change again and there was no room to grow So I decided I speak to these PR people all day long. There was a job open at DKNY and I applied for it and got it fast forward to, you know, 2009, which is when we decided as a company to embark on social media and everyone kind of knew what Facebook, Facebook would look like, but Twitter was new to us anyway, and really to fashion. And no one really understood what that would look and feel like. But I, as a PR person, felt really strongly that we need to make sure we're not misleading the reader or the listener or whoever they were consuming this content in thinking that Donna Karen herself was speaking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I was watching Gossip Girl at the time and I thought, oh, why not do an anonymous character? DKYPR girl, a la Gossip Girl, where we don't have to say who the person is behind the Twitter handle, but at least they're going to know that it's not Donna herself. Right. So that is, that was the sort of mentality. And Legal was really happy with this plan because <laughs> they were, <laughs> you of course. know, they like to insert themselves and, 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 and to further solidify, um, solidify the process. They were like, okay, only Aliza can do Twitter. So it was sort of like you touch it, you own it. Now, mind you, I didn't even know. I had no idea how to engage on Twitter. I had no idea what Twitter was even for. And, you know, you kind of learn as you go. So I figured that I would just kind of write things and see how people react. I remember. 200 followers. And I remember 10,000 followers. And I remember half a million followers. You know, I remember all those milestones because it, it became such a study in how content affects engagement and what kind of content creates better engagement or what, you know, what, how do people react when you're introduced, when you're talking about more commercial, the, the more commercial side of the business, or do they react better when you're talking about meeting with a celebrity to do a fitting. And of course, the insidery, fly-on-the-wall pieces of content were always the ones that got the best engagement. So I sort of went with that. And and that's what I did. I did it for two years anonymously. And then in 2011, we made a decision to sort of pull back the veil. And that was a really big moment for me because when you're anonymous, you you definitely feel more of a license to push, push the boundaries of what you can say because nobody knows it's you. And then all of a sudden when your name's attached to it, it becomes a different story. So I really tried not to let that affect me. I mean, of course, I always try to use good judgment, but it it became this very, it took some, some time to get used to the fact that people, would actually say my name when they tweeted, or they that they knew that it was this person who worked in PR who was running the Twitter handle, um, and you know it, it it sort of grew and and became a phenomenon and and expanded to different platforms and a blog and you know, eventually did result in Leave Your Mark, my book.
1: I, I think it's really fascinating, too, that you were a pioneer in this, but also it was definitely a pivotal moment. I mean, it was more than a moment. It was years, but a pivotal time in your career. Do you see this as, you know, DKNY PR Girls really being uh, like a crossroads, you know, like maybe not at the time, but looking back?
0: I think that it was a really pivotal time for fashion in the digital space because, DK1PR Girl did not launch without critique and criticism. Uh, There were editors who literally sent my boss emails saying that they're appalled by what I'm speaking about on... Or they didn't know it was me at the time, but they were appalled by what DK1PR Girl is talking about. And does Donna Karen know that this is being said? And it was just... It was such... It was just... it had never been done before, right? This whole idea of humanizing a brand in a way that is so connected to the consumer, so direct, not the designer, not a spokesperson, just almost like your best girlfriend who's speaking to you and giving you this kind of bird's eye, you know, insider view into all the inner workings of a company in fashion. So I think you know when we when people say you know DK, PR girl was a pioneer. I think that's really because she gave people she gave brands permission to look at voice differently, brand voice, right? And and I think that that was the biggest contribution that I made because you know especially as a PR person when every single statement used to be crafted and mulled over and really like strategically written, whether it was from Donna Carey or a CEO, all of that was out the window. All of a sudden, a tweet was an official comment by a company and that, you know, the first time the New York Times quoted a tweet of DKNY PR girls, I was like, holy shit, I, like I knew I had to be careful, but wow, I can't believe the New York Times is actually using that as a quote
1: right and now it's you know it's common to take people's quotes from social media and you know repeat them and actually even uh, see those in the newspaper a lot, <laughs> so a hundred percent, but back then
0: you know it mm-hmm. was all new and and really, I think it you know social media in two thousand and nine two thousand and ten even two thousand and eleven was really like the wild wild West.
1: I read in an interview that you did with Forbes where you attribute your success at Donna Karen to four big rules. Um, one of which is learning to say no, um, an idea that may be surprising to some, I think, especially for women at times, it's always hard, harder, feels harder for us sometimes to say no and set those boundaries. Um, what did saying no look like in your career and how can others take, you know, heed in the workplace without stepping on toes? So
0: it's a great question. I mean, I think that, It's really not advice that you can blanket across every industry or every job or every person. And I want to be really clear about that because I had a certain um, confidence because of my longevity with the company and because I had such a proven track record that I felt that I could say no to things with with, of course, giving reason. Um, and and, and when, I, when I say, say no, I don't mean that if someone asked me to do something, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not what I mean at all. It's not about deflecting workload or any of that. It was more about being strong enough in meetings or to creative directors or to CEOs and be able to say, I don't agree with doing that and here's why, as opposed to being a yes person because you're scared to be the opinion that's going against what senior management wants to do. Absolutely. So I,
1: th- how so long, I think if you, sorry, oh, I was just going to ask how long into your career, Donna Karen, do you think you built up that confidence? Because I'm sure some people understand what you mean by you know I had been there for a while. I was pretty senior. Um, are we talking like ten years into your time there? I'm just kind of trying to get a picture of this.
0: Um, I would say. Let's see, um, i trying to think of like my titles and my years, um, to give you a real sense, actually six years in, Okay. to be exact, um, I would say, you know, at the vice president level, and probably even the director level, you know, I'm, I'm always someone I've never been afraid to say what's on my mind. Um, in a professional way. And I think that um, in general, I'm like that, because I I, I feel that if something's my responsibility, and at the end of the day, silence is agreement. And I know that something isn't going to work for whatever reason, or I believe that it's not the right path, then I feel it's my responsibility to voice that. Not because I'm trying to like, do everyone a favor by saying so, but because I don't want it coming back on me that I didn't say anything. It's like, wait, that's your job. Like, why didn't you say anything if you didn't think that was going to work? Like, I don't want that to ever be my, my reputation. So I'm willing to put my neck on the line and, and be the, be the dissenting opinion just so that I know
1: that I said my piece. Hey there, let's take a quick time out from today's episode so I can tell you about a new product that I'm loving called Lola. For many women, myself included, we've never thought about what's in our tampons and what they're made out of. And that's because the FDA actually doesn't require brands to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients. And I recently learned that the major brands that make the tampons that most of us probably use Well, they use a mix of synthetic ingredients, including rayon and polyester. I don't know about you, but that does not sit well with me. That's why I was thrilled to discover Lola, which offers complete transparency with their feminine care products. And they're made with 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, dyes, or fragrances. So yes, this is a much better and much healthier option. I also love that Lola is founded by women and run by women. And another added bonus with Lola is their monthly subscription is fully customizable from the products to the absorbency mix to the frequency of how often you get your box. So, that means no more buying tampons late at night from the drugstore, which I think we can all be thankful for. And I really love when my box arrives every month because it's so convenient. It's right there on my doorstep and I don't even have to think about it. I've really benefited from Lola's convenience and I'm confident my body is also benefiting. And that's why we're offering you a special offer with 40% off all subscriptions. That's 40% off, it's a huge discount off all subscriptions. Just go to mylola.com and enter females when you subscribe to get this amazing offer. Again, go to mylola.com and enter females, F-E-M-A-I-L-S, when you subscribe so you can start enjoying the benefits of Lola today. All right, now let's get back to the show. And what about for others, especially women in the workplace, you know, regardless of where they are in their career, what's a good way to say no without stepping on toes? Like when, you know, uh, you've probably seen this happen many times in the workplace. I mean, what are some ways to do it so that most people don't walk away uh, with their feathers ruffled?
0: (laughs) Well, I think, I think (laughs) I always love citing best practice. So if someone throws out an idea, I might say something like, that's a really interesting idea, but you know, best practice is X,
1: Y, and Z. That's a great, so, that's a great you know, little segue into it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I do think the delivery, like saying no is all in the delivery, right? I once uh, was given advice and she said, you have to tell people no without ever actually using the word no. And I thought that well, was really clever.
0: Well, actually I, did, I wrote another Forbes article on the power of saying yes which is a great segue um, after this, because what I have found, especially when you're dealing with creative people who really don't want another opinion, right? There's a lot of creative directors, especially in in my industry where you know they're sort of declaring what they want and they're not really interested in hearing the chorus. And when it comes to you know what you know, something that you have to execute, I think it's really great to be able to say something like, Oh my God. I love that idea. Let me look into it. And then you come back with facts. So you come back and you're like, you know, let's say we're talking about a celebrity. It's like, Oh my God, that person would be amazing for our ad campaign. Let me look into it. You, you look into it, either the person's not available because they're away or you look into it and the person's $5 million. And instead of saying like, Hey, this person's $5 million that's way out of our budget you say something like, Hey, this person's amazing. She loves the brand. She's going to be $5 million. What do you think? And even though you know that you do not have the money and you know the answer you're throwing into their court for them to be like, Oh my God, no, I'm not $5 million <laughs> for that person. So it, it, it becomes their idea. And I think that's the trick.
1: Yeah. Definitely the art of that communication for sure. Uh-huh. Yep. So- so the first edition of your book, Leave Your Mark, debuted in 2015, and it was a huge hit. I mean, I I definitely look at it as it pretty much laid out the career curriculum that women follow for networking, landing dream jobs, standing out to your boss. Um, what inspired you to write this book? And what's one key takeaway for women who want to leave their mark? And I know there's a lot of key takeaways, so that's kind of a tough one, I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you. Um, So an editor, I did not have the... This was not my idea. I was never writing a book. This was not a goal. I never thought I was writing a book. An editor who was following me on Twitter and following the blog, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was dkmyprgirl.com. she called me one day at the office and she's like, hi, I'm Amanda. Um I follow you on Twitter, I read your blog, and I'm an editor and I think there is a book in here somewhere. And I said, you know, thank you so much. That's really flattering, but I am not interested in writing a book. And she was really good at her job and she <laughs> sort of she sort of dug into that a little bit. It's like, well, why don't you write a book? Why haven't you, you know, you write all day long. Look, all these tweets, if you just add them all up, that's probably like five different chapters you wrote today. And, you know, she sort of spun it like, but you already do this. You are writing a book. You just don't realize it. Um, so she convinced me. And, you know, one of the things, she sort of challenged me to think about what I want to say because she gave me the hard task, of or, or the hard parameters of saying, you can write about anything, we just want your voice in a book. So that basically is like, okay, well, thanks for that, because I have no idea what to write about, because now that's way too broad. So I sort of, you know, first of all, my gut was to say no, and I think this is an important sort of lesson for people who are listening, because my gut was to say no, because I was absolutely petrified to write a book. I thought, Oh my God, what if I can't do it? What if it's poorly received? What if, you know, what if I say something that offends someone? Like I thought of a million reasons not to do this. And then I literally had to have a talk with myself and say, okay, you know what, Aliza, that's exactly why you're going to do it because you have to push back against that fear. And I made myself push back against that fear because I knew that it was probably going to be a great opportunity, and it's not every day that someone gets a basic book deal, because by the way, you normally have to have a literary agent to get a book deal, so I didn't even have that. Um, so I, I really sort of pushed myself past where I was comfortable, which is why I always talk about um, sort of, you know, you're supposed to be uncomfortable when you change, because that's when you're growing, and if you're not uncomfortable, then you're not growing at all and um, essentially signed up and said, okay, I'll do it. And, um, and then I thought to myself, God, what do I love doing all day? What are my tweets about? What, it, what essentially am I writing about on my blog? And I realized that what I love doing the most and communicating the most, and I think what also gets the most reaction and engagement um, is really my advice. And I thought, okay, you know what? I have this hashtag PR 101 where I used to tweet out all this advice on how to be a publicist. And so many times people would tweet back and say, that's not just for PR, that's Life 101. And that was really um, sort of the motivator. And in, in addition to the fact that I would get all of these tweets via DM saying, you know, can I take you to coffee and pick your brain? Can I ask you some questions about my career? So it became this thing that I did online to people around the world. And I thought to myself, okay, like I don't have time to grab coffee with everyone who asks me for advice, but I, but yet I want to help them. So that became my mission. And that's why I wrote leave your mark because I thought, okay, I'm going to write everything I know down in a book and then pay forward
1: what I know. Right. And it, I wonder, Did I mean, maybe afterwards you felt like this, but was there a part of you that said, I wish I had had this book when I was, you know, transitioning from pre-med to fashion and you didn't, I mean, you obviously were very clever looking at mass heads and, and reaching out to people. Um, but did you also kind of get nostalgic about like, hey, I was, I was this person before who didn't know what I wanted to do. In addition to probably all the people who are in the industry they want and they still need more advice.
0: Oh yeah. I would have loved a book like this. First of all, I would have loved if someone told me that you could work in the fashion industry, like maybe 10 years prior to me figuring it out.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. You didn't have to go through neurobiology or <laughs> yes, yes.
0: I would have really loved to not have those 8am labs. Yeah,
1: like, that
0: is definitely so for sure.
1: Um, so, And what's one key takeaway for women who want to leave their mark? I think that's such a great saying. And I think it's, uh, you know, it, it really encompasses this feeling of, you know, you want to be memorable, you want to leave your mark, what's one thing that you can do to do that?
0: Um, I'm going to say two things, if that's okay.
1: The
0: first thing is is that your reputation is your most important asset, and you have to remember that no matter where you work, what you do, etc. The second thing is that I am a real believer in helping other people succeed makes you succeed. So the amount of introductions you can make for somebody else, the amount of advice you can give someone else, I I really do believe that if you're someone that always has sort of the answer or you're like that go-to person where people always know they can call you and like ask for your help and you can recommend someone or you have an idea, like you become this indispensable person in your network. And I think that what I've learned over the years is it's it, it comes back in spades. And in addition to the fact that the most successful people I know, women and men, are the first people to say, how can I help you? And my friend Dave Kirpin said it best. He He said, how can I help you is really the most powerful question you can ask in the world because it automatically makes you the most important person in the room.
1: So I know that there's a, there's a newly released edition of your book and I'm kind of curious, you know, what have you learned since the first release of the book that made you want to have, you know, some additional information and what is the additional information?
0: Sure. So, you know, the, the first release you have to realize it came out in 2015, but it really was written 18 months prior to that because of, the process in publishing, in addition to the fact that we wanted it to come out for graduation time. Mm-hmm. So even though I edited, you know, really close to, I would say the last five months, it, it's old, you know? I mean, it, it needs a refresh. And because my book is a, considered a business book, um, they don't, well, Grand Central, my publisher, they keep business books that are still selling in hardcover in circulation for two years. Whereas other books, I think I think probably everyone knows that they go to paperback after a year. Mm -hmm. So my my book stayed hardcover for two years. It's actually
1: still selling in hardcover. I was gonna say Um, and and for people who are not in the book world, that's basically a a really good thing. You really want that.
0: Yes, you do want that and and it's not something that, you know, is expected. But then you know when they came to me and they said, Okay, so we're gonna go to paperback um for twenty eighteen the first thing I said was, "Can I rewrite the manuscript and update it?" Because first of all, aside from the fact that information needs to be updated, I also didn't work at Donna Karen anymore. I wasn't right. DKNY PR girl anymore, and I wanted to tell that story too. Mm-hmm. So it was just a great opportunity to refresh. And you know, the truth is, if you think I wanted to read that book again, I had read that book no no less than 50 times but I made myself do it because (laughs) I felt like I owed it to the reader um, to give them as fresh information as I could. So I went through every single piece of advice and updated it as best as I could, as best I could for current day. And then of course, added the five chapters that I thought were really important to add.
1: Yeah. And can you tell us what those five chapters were? So when people are thinking about buying the book, they can decide maybe which edition they want. <laughs> well, I definitely think they should buy the paperback.
0: I mean, my publisher will probably kill me for saying that. Um, I think they should buy the paperback because I really touch on um, entrepreneurship in the paperback. And I think, and, and also some, so let me take you through um, essentially what the, what the chapters are. So, um, the first chapter that I added was, uh, quitting your dream job and why I decided to leave Donna Karen and how do you sort of reconcile leaving what essentially is a dream perfect job. Mm -hmm. Um, so going through that story, then, um, I take the reader through becoming an I take sorry. Then I take the reader through becoming an entrepreneur and learning how to spell entrepreneur because I think it's challenging still. It is. Um, (laughs) I've had trouble (laughs) with that one too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and sort of this whole idea of like wanting to be on my own and consulting and how to build a consulting business. So that is a really hands-on chapter of every step I took to do that. So there's a lot of teachings in there. There are a lot of teachings in there. And then Um, the next chapter is as an entrepreneur, get used to the sound of silence. So this whole idea of this whole idea of pitching business and understanding that you're no longer in a position of power, you no longer have a big brand behind you. And what does that mean for securing jobs? Yeah. So that's a really, actually, I'm, I'm really proud of these five chapters because they're brutally honest and they're i think really helpful because you know being an entrepreneur let's face it it's like it's become really trendy and i think for the younger generations it's almost like that i think a lot of people almost look at working for a company like wait why would you do that when you can make your own company like yes. what's wrong with you right what's yes. wrong with you mm-hmm. so so i think those ch- these chapters are really important um the next chapter is ceo and founder of nothing. which is my favorite, um, because everyone's a CEO today. (laughs) Well, I really considered myself CEO and founder of nothing because I essentially spun my creation of my consulting business, um, to such an extent, because that's what I do that. I was like, okay, wait a second. What do I have to really show for this? Mm -hmm. And really taking a, a hard look at, I am networking like crazy. I am meeting every CEO you can ever imagine pitching business, I, like you could not have more meetings or a bigger network than I than I had during those ten months, and I literally was like, "But I don't want to do any of these jobs. Right. Like I don't want to actually work on any of the brands that contact me, and I am not getting the jobs of the brands that I want to work on. So what am I doing? I am actually doing nothing."
1: Yeah, that's and probably that, a re- that was probably a tough reality check coming from you know the glamour of DK and Y too. Well, I think it
0: wasn't as tough as you think because I literally and I go through this in the in the in the chapter, I had this Excel sheet tracking my every move, every every meeting I had, what was discussed, what next steps were, what I pitched. I mean, you you can't imagine this spreadsheet. It was really impressive. And then I realized, you know what? This whole consulting thing is a hustle that I am not interested in. Mm-hmm. And you have to really, really be die hard into it,
1: and I wasn't yeah, no, I'm really happy to hear you say that only because well, one, I definitely identify um when I left my job as a recruiter at Hulu, I absolutely identify with the feeling of now you're going out and before you used to be you know so and so of this big, cool company that everybody you know knows and wants to work with, and then all of a sudden it's I'm part of my own company and it is, it's a, it's really kind of a trip because uh, it feels a little, kind of gross, you know, like your identity was so wrapped up in it. And then you start to have these feelings of identity crisis. Like, who am I if I'm not? I mean, this is my like honest Mm -hmm. story. I I felt really vulnerable out there. So I really identify with that. But I'm really happy to hear you also talk about, you know, just saying like I tried being an entrepreneur and it wasn't for me because I do think that and I know I'm an entrepreneur, so this is going to sound kind of hypocritical. But I do think there's a glamorization of entrepreneurship. And this is the least glamorous job I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and I am so jealous of, you know, or, or I guess envious is probably a better word of people who work for amazing companies, just like they're so envious of me, you know? And I think there's there's definitely uh, a bit of a like internal battle that sometimes happens with that. But I truly believe like you that there are great companies to work for. And, you know, somehow that seems like it's a consolation prize today.
0: I agree. and I And I also think that, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you, if, if you're someone who, and I do think people are different, are are either cut this way or they're not. If you're someone who loves being on their own, you don't mind not having, you know, the collaboration of a team, which by the way, I didn't love, I, I really like working with a team. Um, then you can, you can work at it and you can hustle and you can make it happen. And I think that you know, I have other friends who sort of left their dream jobs too and started consulting businesses and have never looked back. And, you know, I think we're just wired differently. Mm-hmm. The last chapter, the last new chapter is called headhunting and other human games. So that's when I decided that, okay, you know what? I missed the laser focus of a brand. I missed being part of a team. And I want a full-time job and how am I going to now get one? So that whole process, because that's not easy either. And and that's why I, I really always tell people, and I know it's hard, but you really shouldn't quit your job before you have another job.
1: What, how was that like? Because obviously you're now the vice president of brand marketing and communications at Alice, Alice and Olivia. So was it a weird transition or was it hard to find a job after being an entrepreneur? Like, I'm. Um... <laughs> what's the myth and the truth around that?
0: So I'd say that, you know, it's funny because Alison Olivia had contacted me in 2015 when I first launched my book, um, and tried to recruit me then. And I declined because I really wanted to be on my own, be a consultant and promote my book. So, they came back, they just coincidentally came back around right at the time that I was like, okay, no more consulting. This is, this is the worst. Mm -hmm. And they came back around with this executive vice president, brand marketing and communications. And I was like, Oh, it's brand marketing and communications. I'm like, that's really interesting to me. And maybe this is fate because I already kind of said no the first time because of timing, but I love the brand and I, I buy the brand and you know, maybe this is, this is meant to be, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but aside from that, I would say that I spoke to a lot of different headhunters. I also got no responses from a lot of headhunters because I think that, you know, what people don't realize is headhunters have a specific job. They're hired by companies. They're looking for a very specific person. And if you're not that person, they don't need to talk to you. Yep. So so it's it's challenging. And I think, you know, right now, I would say, the, it's really funny, the minute I started working again, full time. They all want you. <laughs> I've never had more people
1: contact
0: me. <laughs> yep, that's how it works. I mean, it's literally how it works. So that's why you really have to sort of, suck it up and hang on as long as you can.
1: Um, an ideal situation. You want to hold on to your job before you find a new one. Yes. Agreed. What, What are some, I mean, since you've done both freelancing and working for someone else, um, what are some of the myths about freelancing and also the myths about working for somebody else?
0: Um, well, that it's easy to work for, 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 excuse me, well, that it's easy to work for yourself. I think it's really, really hard.
1: Yeah. And that you have Um, flexibility and all day, every day you get to make your own schedule, which is sounds glorious, right? But mm -hmm.
0: really when you start to think about how you're patching together a salary, so you think about, okay, my salary from my former job was X, how, 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 how many clients do I need? to make that money up because, you know, those things called rent, food, shelter, things like that, you know, Mm -hmm. they need to be paid by money. They don't get paid by free samples, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's just this myth of just how to patch it together. And, And by the way, if you get a consulting gig, those end too. You might get something for three months or you might get something for six months, then what? So you have to, I know people who do this who've done who have amazingly successful consulting companies, they are literally pitching clients for two years from now
1: Mm -hmm. to make sure that they have a roster of people lined up. If you could rename Meltdown, what would you call it? If I can rename Meltdown, Mm -hmm. the word Meltdown, what would you call it?
0: Do we not like (laughs) (laughs) meltdowns? Oh, that's great. Um, I would say instead of saying, you know, someone's having a meltdown, I would say that someone is spiraling because I think that the word spiral, um, you know, going around in sort of circles, you think of like a circular staircase, for example, Mm -hmm. it's like that constant twisting and turning around and just coming back to the same place, but lower and lower and lower and lower, right. <laughs> um, that to me is a meltdown.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it, it feels like that when you're in it for sure. Um, yeah. and what's next for you and your career? <laughs>
0: um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I really, you know, I, I realized that I, I am a brand girl, so I love what I do. Um, and i think that you know I, I i you know i'm i'm happy to work at a place that's very creative
1: and um and will be you know, will fashion be your industry you think or have you explored would you ever think about going to something totally different like finance or technology or is fashion really your true love
0: so i definitely dabble in fashion tech cuz i advise companies in that space um and i have clients that I work with, um, on a regular basis on that. So that satisfies my need for innovation and sort of knowing like what's coming. Um, I would say that beauty is probably the farthest I'll go outside of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I will definitely not be going into finance, that's my that's That's my husband's playground, and I don't think he's interested in having me in that one.
1: (laughs) Well, as long as you're not thinking about going back to being a surgeon, then I think we're okay because that would be quite the 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 storyline for your parents I'm sure especially
0: oh oh my god yeah oh yeah I mean I think you know what though some days I do think to myself god I would have been a really good plastic surgeon
1: (laughs) I bet um well thank you so much for joining us and and please let the listeners know where can they connect with you it's obviously not Y V R girl anymore but where where can they find you
0: so I, am really simply Aliza Licked on Twitter and Aliza Licked XO on Instagram because somebody has Aliza Licked even though they've never posted. Um, <laughs> and I'm still bitter about I it. I was going to say, not bitter
1: about that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. But you know what, Eva, Eva gave me, Eva Chuck gave me my little, my little verification. So I feel better about that. Right. Um, so, um, and then, you know, on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn, Aliza Licked uh, my website's AlizaLicked.com. I'm pretty much just Aliza Licked.
1: And also they can buy your book if they want to literally carry your advice around with them. Leave your mark.
0: They can buy leave your mark. The paperback is the one that's updated. I will say that the audiobook does not have the new chapters. So if you
1: want the new chapters, definitely buy the paperback. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. That was Aliza Licht, the senior vice president of brand marketing and communications at Alice and Olivia and author of leave your mark. Thank you for listening to this episode of the females for more interviews and career advice from incredible women, check out CareerContessa.com. We also offer other great resources like a curated jobs board, career coaching profiles on female supportive companies and on-demand career courses in our e-learning library. Seriously, we are a one-stop shop for your career success. And if you're looking to leave your mark on your job search, I recommend checking out our four-in-one comprehensive online course, the Complete Job Search Toolkit. This is a four-course bundle that includes resume help, LinkedIn optimization, job search strategy, and how to ace your next interview. And when you go with the course bundle, you save 20% on your overall purchase. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And I'd be so grateful if you could rate us and review us. It's really helpful and valuable to see what you like about the show. Plus, we'll send you all the good karma vibes in return. And don't forget that we're super social on our Instagram channel, at Career Contessa. And we'd love your help spreading the word about this podcast by mentioning it on your social media channels with hashtag the Females Podcast. You can expect a new episode of the Females Podcast every Tuesday. And you won't want to miss next week's episode featuring Christine Hassler a recovering overachiever turned life coach who is committed to guiding people and organizations into their highest potential. I think our version of success and career success is very myopic. We're not looking at it holistically. And I did this in my 20s too until, well, we haven't finished the story until I crashed and burned. I made my career advancement more important than my own psychological advancement, my own relationship with myself. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I am an advocate for for people in their 20s and early 30s is you think that this is the time where you're supposed to just be focusing on your career. No.